Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. You are listening to Be The Change, a podcast of conversations with true visionaries who are creating new paradigms for a healthier planet and society. I am your host, Christine Demick, and my work is in finding real solutions to the biggest problems we face today, climate crisis, capitalism, social injustices, and our failing health. There are amazing humans out there that have answers, and it is my mission to have their voices heard. Together, we can raise consciousness and create a just and equal society. Together, we can be the change. In New York City, we are currently facing major greenwashing resiliency projects that are taking away our public green spaces and old gross vegetation. They are replacing them with cement mounds and more development. Today, we will hear from an environmental restoration expert who believes we need to stop fighting with nature and learn to live in harmony with it, floods and all. Eric T. Fleischer is the co-principal of F2 Environmental Design. He is a soil scientist and an environmental restoration specialist. He is a frequent lecturer on sustainable practices and serves as a consultant for some of the top institutions in the country, including Battery Park City, where he was the former director of horticulture. Welcome to Be the Change, Eric. Well, thanks very much. You're welcome. That's very nice. It's a pleasure to have you here today. And you may have listened to the previous episode. And for those who haven't, we were discussing Battery Park, of which you were the former director of horticulture, and the plans that they're doing for resiliency. And it's not just Battery Park, but it's also East River Park. And I know they're doing some things on Governor's Island here in New York City. And I'm thrilled to have you here today because it doesn't seem that anyone's checking in with the experts. (laughs) It seems that you know, that our politicians are politicking. And I'm not sure who they consulted on these projects with, but I'm interested in hearing from someone who does this as a living and to tell us, do we really need to level all the trees? Like, how do we create a more resilient city? Does it require cement? So in terms of that, you outlined a number of different things. (laughs) I'm good at that. I won't approach all of them because... In terms of that, I don't know the processes that are involved with some of these projects that you have stated. Uh, I do know the ones, obviously, that I work with and that I'm involved with. Yeah. But what I can do is speak to the facts of my background and, and what I know and my expertise. Sure. In relation to that. So, yes, I do believe that obviously with everything that we are experiencing now in terms of of what we call climate change or however you want to call it, environmental change, certainly we are seeing changes in terms of our plant indexes. You know, we're seeing changes of zones changing very dramatically. We can grow things now in this area that we couldn't have grown 10 years ago, even. That's right. We can catch things that we couldn't catch here. Exactly. And so if you also look at it, a few different people I will will reference. Peter Del Tredici, for instance, 
who studies weeds of the Northeast, has seen the trends of these weeds that we have not seen before in our areas, which particularly you see them first in cities. Cities are kind of the canary in the coal mine, if you will, right? Because the change is a little bit more dramatic yeah. than it is outside of the city. Right? Why is that? Why is that? Uh, well, because temperatures are a bit warmer, you know? Okay. And even if you drive up, you know, if you're driving up to Vermont from New York, or if you're driving, you'll see all the evergreens, the pines, you'll see tons of pines just browning out, right? And so there's a whole issue of temperature change. There's a change in biology in the soils in relation to the water change in terms of the water quality, the amount of water that is coming down and how it's coming down in relation to, you know, we are having these cloud bursts now and a very different rate of water flow from the sky. So whatever you want to call it, we are seeing an environmental change that's absolutely a challenge for those of us, let's just say horticultural technicians managing the landscape. Okay. So if you bring it down to that sort of basic level of those of us who are managing the landscape, we have to deal with this. Yeah. So that being said, I think there needs to be a deep search into what's happening with these biological systems because it is being changed. Well, I was going to say, I think that one of the things that cities seem to do, or maybe rather politicians seem to do, is not really care about the research. Like they suddenly want a one and done. And no one, even to this day, seems to be paying attention or wanting to work with nature. It's wanting to control nature. And I, and it's like, we haven't learned enough yet that we can't control nature. <laughs> you know, Fritz Haber. Yeah. But please explain because I don't think everyone does. All right. So back in 1903, he figured out how to synthesize nitrogen. Okay. And between 1903 and 1918, there was a a tremendous amount of utilization of nitrogen. This was his answer, basically NPK fertilizer, to what he felt was increase the agricultural food component to feed the expanding industrial revolution, the expanding populations, so to speak, right? We're still reeling from that. That's right. Little discovery, right? So that goes back to what your statement, what you just said in terms of us trying to control nature and asking plants to do things that they can't do. Yes. Right? And we're dealing with this on so many different levels. We're seeing so many different plant diseases coming up now. My wife is a boxwood specialist. And she's the president of American Boxwood Society. She is dealing with the cholinectria pseudovaniculata disease that has come up through boxwood. And we're dealing with this with folks in Europe as well as in this country. And we're going to see that continuously. There's a new disease now coming up with beech trees and with oaks. And 
as we see this happening, it's really a result of obviously, well, a few different things, the change in climate, but also how we have managed these plants over the years. We've overmanaged them, overwatered, overfertilized. It's outside of the realm of understanding how the plant functions. So rather than choosing the right cultivar of boxwood, we'll choose this boxwood in front of Versailles and we're going to prune it within an inch of its life and take away its all its foliar sort of function as well as its soil function, essentially, and expect it to survive. Yeah. And this is a recipe for disaster. So right. like you said, if we're trying to control these elements of nature and you take it out of its element where it grows in the coldest environments and on hillsides in very poor soils and put it into a rich soil and then prune it within its life of <laughs> take yeah. away its function, essentially, yeah. what do you expect to happen? You're going to develop these issues. So I'm very familiar with the fact of soil depletion, and I'm also familiar with regenerating it, which is what you work in yeah. and you specialize in. But I want to make sure that we talk about, like you said that we see it mostly, this becomes apparent in the cities, right? And so when we're looking at coastal areas and, and that we have these mature plants growing already, or, you know, in East River Park, they chopped down 700 trees, 700 trees, and there's 500 left, right? Maybe a little bit more. I'm not exactly sure, but how is that resilient? Like, I know I'm not going to put you on the spot and say, because I know, you know, obviously you need to look at the plan, but can you see any scenario where removing our mature trees and vegetation is helpful? Like in any way, well, shape or form? So the question is, in terms of what you're referring to in East River Park, I don't know, yeah. but we did. That is one area where I know a tremendous number of trees were lost Yeah, in relation to Superstorm Sandy, right? So we lost a lot of London plane trees along that East River Park. From the uh, waters. Yeah, from that water. There was a lot of salt inundation and there are issues and there was a whole study that we did in relation to that particular storm. We looked at salt tolerant plants, also different soil types and how that would affect that yeah. growing environment. It's hard to say why those trees were removed, but I can't imagine at this point because back in the day, you know, Henry Stern, he wouldn't allow anything to be removed, right? During his tenure, it was difficult even if a tree was sort of somewhat hazardous to remove it because you'd have to make absolutely every justification to remove that particular tree. Okay. So I would have to assume in terms of trees being removed, I can't speak to that and for what reason they would be removed, but I certainly don't advocate for healthy trees within a landscape to be removed. Right. Well, I that think are totally functioning because that whole issue of replacing trees yeah. 
if you replace a tree, a mature tree with yeah. one that is not, it's going to be years, many years before you get that same advantage in many different ways. That's right. Both in terms of obviously the growth of the tree, its shade creation aspect, and more than that, its ability and efficiency to cleanse the water that's flowing through its root system, right? Yeah. And also collecting the water that that kind of a root system collects. And the strength that I guess the root system has as well. I would say that you could, right. you, you take them all down and then you put in saplings. And if a storm comes next year, they're not going to survive because they're not strong enough yet. Right. Right. It takes years to develop that. I think when we're looking at plants, you have to look at, are we looking at a commensal plant community? Okay. Right. So the plants that we choose, are they going to survive within this plant community? in you know a way that is beneficial to the environment yeah right yeah so i think we have to and and i was striving for this back and now back to when i was with battery park city and i worked on teardrop park yes so i worked with teardrop park and i worked with mvva group michael van volkenberg and associates in terms of that and one of the things that i asked them to look at is look at commensal plant communities what grows well together what will function within the same plant bed and do well and thrive within a shared root zone because that's really what we're looking at here we're trying to value the root space that we have and you want plants that are going to survive well together now that was 25 years ago so this was kind of initially what was brought up What I have since seen and looked at from that point of view is, okay, there are certain reasons why plants will survive well together and why they won't. Yeah. Are they endomycorrhizal in nature or ectomycorrhizal in nature, right? And these are important things to take into account as well in terms of salinity and everything else, because ectomycorrhizal plants tend to be more sensitive to salts, right? Endo are a little bit more tend to be able to withstand that better. Yeah. So the understanding of the biology of not only, okay, do these plants look good together? What is the community? How do they live? How do they thrive together? Because plants are a community. They don't live well in tree pits, (laughs) which is why we've wanted to build this out and, and create uh, continuous beds underneath that. And that's why we've come up with structural soils. I mean, one of my mentors long, long ago was Nina Bassick, who started this with, you know, Cornell. Yeah. And she and I worked together on the New York Mercantile Exchange long time ago, figuring out these sort of connections and how they function. Yeah. So there's a lot of different components to look at. And and what we're talking about here is one is we're seeing obviously a changing environment and we have to understand how that environment is changing rather than just put up a wall in front of it. Yeah. And there's an issue of fungibility, I believe. More and more so, because as we see waters rising and waters going out, 
we have to have, I believe, soft surfaces, soft surroundings that will allow it in and allow it out and be able to regenerate from that. In our pre-conversation, so everyone knows we've spoken before, one of the things that you said to me that really struck me was we have to be able to not only work with nature, but perhaps think about allowing it to flood and then recede. And, you know, I mean, it's like, gosh, has anyone ever thought about that? Maybe we need to just keep that landscape. And so it's green most of the time, but make it resilient in a way that it will flood. But things will be okay. And it'll go, it'll recede and it'll do its job. Some of which that I know that you did here in Battery Park and that I was also really surprised to hear. I didn't realize what a system it is. I've lived down here for five years and it (laughs) happens to be one of the most beautiful parks in the city. And I think that everyone who does live in Battery Park understands that because, you know, it's a little bit off the beaten path, right? You know, in the wintertime, it's real drag. It's cold down here. But our parks are unbelievable. And the work that you did on it, when you're telling me, like, I mean, it's everyone, you're probably familiar with mycelium networks. And it's a beautiful example that when you were looking at, we're on the water, right on the Hudson. So you were looking at possible flooding or raining that you built it. So the grasses suck it up and then take it out into the water. Right. I don't think people realize that. Like it's the system. It's this beautiful community of people and plants living together. Did I get that right? You did. Absolutely. And what it was designed as, which I feel the most proud of is that it's a closed loop system. Yeah. But my goal was to produce a system in which nothing really had to be brought into it. Mm-hmm. Right? We utilize the community. Starbucks, the Big Apple Market, the, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the grocery stores. Once those things passed, we went and picked them up. It became part of our composting process along with everything that we brought in. But yeah. we separated everything into woody material, uh, herbaceous material, right? So the herbaceous material tends to be bacterial. The woody material tends to be fungal. And so we combined all these components into a very small composting system. And they're still utilizing this composting system. Now we eventually had to move it indoors. But it was to really put together these recipes and put the biology back. So essentially, if you're looking at it, and this is really what we're talking about, is mimicking what happens in nature, right? Because certain plants require a certain biology, others require another biology. And generally, in the natural environment, all that falls down to the ground and it's taken care of. You don't walk into an old growth forest and say, oh, I think we need to fertilize this, right? Right, right. Right? No. Because it's all fine. And it's It's a loop. It's it's a loop, as you said. Yes. Right? Putting everything back to where it should go in relation to where it came from. It goes back into that system and should function as such. Yes. It should not need to be additional inputs into that. 
right? Because that's what's based on a fully environmental system. Now, Teardrop Park functions very nicely because kind of part of the design was that you'd leave the foliage as it falls down. Right? Okay, so it would and naturally right compost. Yeah. yeah, naturally compost. But again, we mulch things back into the lawn. We continue to do that. So as opposed to doing additional nitrogen input, mm-hmm. these are the processes that we got started with this park system, and that's why it worked. So you added additional nitrogen? No. No, right? No. It's all self-sufficient and it's completely exactly. organic. There's no pesticides that were used in battery no. park. Is that right? Now, so this is the key. Yeah. Right. If there's anything I can say, the key to this is that it's in building that biology, uh-huh. which is a nutrient cycling system. So you have all this bacteria that's already there in the soil and you build up your predatory populations to feed on that bacteria which then produces NH4. Okay. Right? Yeah. But it's all at a very slow rate, at a rate that which the plants will take it up. Gotcha. But you never have free-floating nitrogen hanging out. Yeah. In the soil, right? Yeah. So this is like a totally key to what this is. Because it's in the living organisms and they're producing it slowly, even if you have a 100-year storm, or yeah. a 200-year storm, none of that nitrogen is going to flow out into the water supply because it's tied up in living organisms. I see. Right? Yeah. But it's producing it at a rate in which the plants can take it up. So then we don't have the problem, which they're having in Florida right now with the nitrogen algae. from the, right? the algae blooms going and in, up. In Scandinavia. Exactly. Pardon? Everywhere. They're it's having everywhere. Problems. And this is why we went in and worked on the project in Expedia. Okay. In Seattle. Okay. So this was exactly to have this kind of a system so that nothing would flow off into the bay. And, you know, they have this whole salmon safe program because the fish and aquatic life in general have been suffering. Yes. Because of this really nitrogen runoff. Yeah. We wanted to make sure none of that would run off. Okay. That was really based, all based on the work that initially came from Battery Park City. Wow. And the same program that's at Harvard, you know, that I I still work on regularly. Okay. I'm up there a couple of days every month. Tell me about that. What do you do there? So there, again, it's a self-contained system in Mm -hmm. which we collect everything that comes off of the site. We compost it put it back where it should go and uh, have corrected the soil biology. 86 acres of the campus are completely organically managed. Wow. That's something else. Yeah. You know, I worked on a bill and uh, I'm not sure because there's so many different parks. It's weird because in New York, a lot of things get privatized, right? That's a city park. But it's privatized, like Central Park, where there's donations. Is, is Central Park, I don't think it is organic. Do you know? I don't believe it is. I don't think um, so. I, I think we were working on banning the glyphosate, which we did in city parks. So, yeah. And did that with non-toxic neighborhoods, which is a good thing. 
Okay. So this leads me to believe is like, why do some people get it, Eric? And some people don't, particularly in the same city. It's like, do they not consult one another? So it's like your park knows, and it's beautiful. I mean, you're no longer there at Battery Park, gorgeous park, all organic, right? I mean, it's unbelievable. It's exquisite. Good. Thank you. Right. It's exquisite. I haven't been back there for a while, but I'm glad to hear that. It's exquisite. So why isn't Central Park get on board? Why aren't all the parks organic? Is there a cost? What is it? Is it money? Power? It's usually money and power. That's what I've I've come to find. (laughs) I think what we're talking about is an issue of philosophy. And philosophical change takes a long, long time. Oh, interesting. So we work with people all the time that are, it's really about, well, I've done this this way for many, many years. And you can even say, well, you know, just about everything that you're doing, 85% of it is exactly what you should be doing, but about 15% of it, perhaps we could change. So rather than doing those timed applications of nitrogen and timed applications of lime and timed applications of whatever, why don't we make this a little bit more diagnostic? Let's take some samples. Let's understand exactly what's happening between the root systems and the soil environment. And how is this functioning to really better the environment? Yeah. And Thus, the growing environment, which is what's initially looked at, is well, how healthy do the plants look? But that affects us in so many different ways, just in terms of planet health, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And oh, sure. I kind of view this, and I found that it was sort of an interesting thing. I just kind of came up with this that essentially we're working with a patchwork of landscapes across the world. Because it's come to this point where there's so much development and everything else that we don't have huge areas of landscape Yeah, in many ways. We do have some, and many of those are suffering, but every little landscape and every little patch, and particularly in urban situations, why don't we view each one of those as an integral part of maintaining planet health? Yeah. Right? I don't know. Why don't we? (laughs) It should function as its own little biological system, which fully functions, utilizes its resources, and functions as a functional, healthy biological system, as opposed to some kind of annual display, let's just say. Yeah. Humans are going to human, you know, (laughs) right? People are going to people. Recently, I have a property in Turks and Caicos Island, which I I believe I I spoke to you about, Mm -hmm. and there hasn't been any landscaping done. And it's there's so much vegetation and it's gorgeous. And we had someone come in and my son, you know, he's like, well, I want it landscaped. You know, he's thinking of like the hotels and like how everything's, you know, controlled or whatever. And I said, absolutely not. We're not going to do that. And thankfully, everyone there who I'm working with had said, absolutely not, because you need what's indigenous here to protect your home against the hurricane and the erosion that you're going to see, right? Exactly. From the winds and waters. But to bring it back home here in New York is what I find upsetting. And again, I don't expect you to answer on this, but what's happening in Wagner Park now is that it sits in between 
two areas that flooded that came in from the tunnel, right? And it flooded out on the mm-hmm. sides. Yeah. And Wagner Park, when you and I discussed, because you were here for Sandy, and yeah. in fact, you collaborated with other parks to look at it, right? But you had told me you only had like three plants that died from that entire Sandy. It did flood, right? And then the water went out, but it did exactly as the park was designed to do. And you rinsed off the salt water and everything thrived again. And here we are. And I guess what's upsetting is that you built this, Eric, you know, you helped build it and it's working. And now for whatever reason, I can't answer that. And I'm trying to get to the bottom of it, that people want to mess with that system. Humans are going to human. So I'm grateful for people like you out there, but what can people do? There's multiple people, but is there like a organization that people can join or to get involved in park resiliency? And do you know of anything, any such thing? So I guess as we started, you just brought up a whole bunch. I do that. Yeah. (laughs) So I try to deal with each thing. Um, You can pick one or two. (laughs) It's hard to say. I can't make a comment on what the plans are because I don't know enough about the plans for what the restoration is to be. Mm -hmm. But in terms of that, probably everything we've talked about is pretty clear in terms of how I view things. Yes. All right. So within that, hopefully this will be approached in a responsible manner, I would expect it would be. And all the components that we have recently just discussed over this past hour or so would be looked at. What are the functions going to be? What are the plant communities that are intended? Are they commensal plant communities? Will they work together? Will they actually function as we have described and function commensally with the soils as designed. Yeah. So I would assume there is a soil scientist that's involved with this and a plant specialist, I'm sure, as part of the landscape architecture team. However, that is planned should be carefully considered. And The other consideration, of course, is the consideration of mature trees versus trees that are not mature and how they will establish, et cetera. And there should be applications for that as to how that moves forward and how that functions and how it actually works environmentally with that space. But yes, there are two different components, which I think was one of your questions. And the biggest challenge when I was there was dealing with the water from the east side of the um, park island as opposed to the west side. Yeah. 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 So the portion that came up from the Hudson River was definitely not as challenging as the portion that came up the west side highway and then flowed in. That's uh, right. With a lot of contaminants, etc. Yeah. 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 Actually I spoke to our, our building manager about that and he had said that it came up through there, through that tunnel. Right. And what he suspects that was their own sewage draining system being overwhelmed and just flushing it up. And it was just a huge number of contaminants. 
which right. isn't good. And it isn't good for our waterways. It, yeah. it kind of has to be looked at, I believe, as a whole system. Yeah. I don't think you can take part of the city and look at it as, okay, let's work on this section. I think it has to be kind of looked at as a whole area because, again, a lot of the, like you said, East River Park, a lot of plants, a lot of trees were lost yeah. from that storm there. And a lot of the areas that came through the best, you know, were like Rockefeller Park, Wagner Park, Brooklyn Bridge Park. These areas came through with very little loss. So, yeah, because after Sandy, you collaborated with the other parks and you analyzed right. it, right? Yes, and, and we have a, a list of salt-tolerant plants and we came together with a commission of people who were running these different parks, systems. I'd say that Rebecca McMacken really headed that up. She is a great horticulturist. She is a specialist in pollinators and native plants. She was the director of horticulture until recently yeah. at Brooklyn Bridge Park. Uh-huh. I nominated her for a Moog Fellowship at Harvard. Oh. And she got several recommendations and, in fact, received it. So she's moved on and she's going to that. But she's a tremendous resource. And we did a presentation together at the uh, ASLA Denver uh, meeting on Superstorm Sandy and its implications. So it is definitely something that there's a lot of work that has been done. I would assume that, in fact, they're utilizing that research in moving forward. I hope so. And um, that we can, in one way or another, have a good positive influence. Yeah. The Brooklyn Bridge Park is interesting because it did flood. That's a, a beautiful, beautiful park. And again, it has soft. Yes. You know, Purposely yeah. to absorb the water. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think it's really a beautiful example of resiliency and working with nature. It is. I would say Michael Van Valkenburg is a good example, a very yeah. good example of doing that kind of work exactly that takes into account because they're great at putting together uh, workable teams that bring together the different, let's just say, knowledge, the different knowledge points within the landscape yeah. industry and put it into a design. And I, I think it has worked out quite well, certainly in that particular aspect. Yeah. It's funny because it's just, you know, how to make things look pretty, right? People are now approaching it in that sense. It's like, I want a healthy garden. I want a self-sustaining organic garden. Whereas it was before I want it to look like this. Right. And so I could be a garden designer just with a good eye and no expert in any of it, you know, and people would lose plants left and right. I still see people doing that and not really consulting. Right. You know, but now we've seen actually, and you know, we've, kind of seen why some of these things work like we yes we talked about earlier there's reasons why plants work in a community yeah what's happening underneath the soil are they ectomycorrhizal are they endomycorrhizal right. <laughs> Do they work together so everything happy right exactly right i want to hear more about there was a jardin du bois which yeah. is garden of boxwood so tell me about that it's an interesting thing so Andrea, my wife, is a boxwood specialist and an architect. She's an architect. So, but thus being an architect, she likes architectural plants and architectural design. 
Okay. So it's a very interesting thing. The two of us are just about as different as you could possibly be. <laughs> right. <laughs> but this comes together in, in a lovely way because she has spent a lot of her life studying boxwood and which happens to be a plant that's very challenging in terms of disease and how it's handled. And there are a tremendous number of varieties of this plant. So to me, it's a very good example. If you will, we talk about the canary in the coal mine and you see, okay, here's this plant that's been mishandled for thousands of years and now we're seeing all these problems. But yes, we're also seeing all these problems with other plants as well. Mm -hmm. And it's really all a basis of, okay, let the plant grow the way it would naturally grow. Choose the right plant, let it grow the way it should, prune it out so that air can flow through it. Don't fertilize it, leave it alone. Yeah. It's a good example of that. And I would say that where we are now, we kind of utilize this place. It's a place that we utilize now for our research. I used to use uh, Battery Park City as my research grounds, you know, kind of what yeah. I did. I would see things go over a period of time and see how they did or did not do and did work or not. And now this is what we're doing here. And we're seeing how these structural formats, because there are, there's an increased love of bleached trees and polarded trees, et cetera. And there's a way that that can be done in a very fine way and have the plants actually thrive. So we utilize what we do here yeah. and bring that to the industry. So we're reworking the the Bosque at Lincoln Center right now, for instance, in front of the library. We're trying to bring that back. And that's really what we do. We try to see, okay, how do we function? We just created a duck pond, right? Mm -hmm. So we created a duck pond with a biological filter here and ensuring that, in fact, ducks are the dirtiest birds there are, absolutely. <laughs> so now if we can clean that through our biological filter and have it come through, and have it be clean, right? yeah. then I think we're there. We should be able to utilize these biological filters in public parks. Well, there's some natural yeah. nitrogen there too, yeah. right? Exactly. Yeah. So you don't need it. Yeah. Exactly. Everything is happening and it's functioning. So this is the kind of thing that we do here. And a lot of work in terms of we'll take the most challenging situations that we have on a project I think that this particular one, this duck one, for instance, was in relation to a water feature that they want to have at the Amazon headquarters in Arlington, Virginia. So we thought, why not incorporate a biological filter and do it that way? So that's why we did this little thing here. And we utilize our space here to do our testing and then make sure that it works when we bring it out to the real world. <laughs> but it's also is your dream team. She's providing that that visual, right? Which was usually what people focused on was just the visual, and you're providing the ecosystem and and can it all go together and creating this beautiful harmony of which this planet was created on. This planet was made to run perfectly. It's just humans are going to human, right? Right. And we don't have to look too far. Then I think what I'm gathering from you too, Eric, is that. 
to wrap up this conversation is we're talking about resiliency and how do we do that? How do we work with nature? And that's the key is, is working with nature. Each one, I was going to ask you like your idea of the best climate resilient park, but I think that would be silly because I think it's, it's individual. You have to look at each individual place to create a perfect scenario. Yeah. What are the challenges of that particular situation? Because we're yeah. all looking at different situations and they have their own challenges. Yeah, absolutely. And also every aspect of our industry. Right. Yeah. But I would encourage that the, the designers and the folks who are dealing with really designing these park spaces take into account rather than starting with the design component and what you want to put on it, do the pre-design research, which is what we generally bring to every project is, look, before we do anything, we need to do a pre-design research. And let's see, what are the environmental requirements of this space that will enable whatever is designed to function as it should? Mm. Because the best design in the world, if it doesn't look good five years after it's been opened, what good is it? Right. It should look a million times better 20 years from the time it's opened than when it opened, right? Yeah. So it has to function with the environmental surroundings. And so I'm just going to put in a little plug here. Yeah, for please. In September, we're doing a sustainable floral workshop. Wow. Because the floral industry is not one that's particularly sustainable. Tell me, tell me more. So they're growing plants in South America. They're yeah. not local. They're utilizing a lot of chemicals. It doesn't compost well. There's a lot of issues in relation to this. And again, it's talking about a change of philosophy. Choose plants that are local to where you are. And how do you look at your arrangements and the season? Why have something that's not seasonal in your arrangement? Mm. Right? So our workshop is September 18th through the 20th. Okay. And we have a group of people, some great designers from Brooklyn and from Washington and Canada and from England. We have uh, really great, great, great people who um, are interesting in terms of design, but also really have a focus on their environmental focus, you okay. know, in terms of what they're doing within their industry. So Shane Connolly going to be here. Beautiful. He's a lovely designer. He's, he works in England. He's coming over and he's done a lot of very amazing work focusing on in local plants and a different perspective. And I think if people can see that that can be still functional in growing their businesses and that they perhaps might even do better doing it this way and also help save the planet, I think it would be a huge thing. So we're trying to have some influence on the industry as a whole. Amazing. And where can people sign up for this event? Is Get it Jardin Dubuis and I can send you a link. Okay. And if you would want to put that on, that would be good. 
Sure, sure, sure. And if people want to work with you, Eric, this is a great time to plug it in. Where can people find you? Is it at F2 or do you want to give your website? T at F2 environmental design.com. That's my email. That's your email. F2 environmental design.com. Beautiful. And I'm happy to respond. Wonderful. Well, I thank you so much for all that you're doing to be the change. And I guess the, the last question I ask everyone is what keeps you going? So obviously this is an industry that is oddly so not been organic, you know, and as we discussed, as we just spent an hour discussing how people like to use things to enhance the plants that eventually kill them and not work with nature and buy flowers in South America, et cetera, and use things that they shouldn't. How do you keep going? What do you do this for? Well, so I got, I got Jocko here. Okay. Jocko. <laughs> for everyone, just, we're not going to have the video, but Jocko is a beautiful dog. Is this a, a spaniel of some sort? It is an English setter. An English setter. Okay. Who's been sitting here at my side the whole time. He keeps me going. It's really from start to finish. I want to try to do something to leave the world in a better place when I leave this world. And, you know, I think it's goes back to the, the transcendentalists, you know, of leave no footsteps. Yeah. When you want footprints, right. Yeah. uh, I'm a huge transcendentalist. Okay. I feel that I want to try to leave the world in a better place than it was before I entered it. Yeah. And that's a really, really big challenge. But I do live by that. Beautiful. That's beautiful. Well, thank you, Eric. Thank you so much for being on Be The Change. And thank you for being the change. It's been a real pleasure. Thank Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this conversation and are inspired. We grow with supporters and listeners like you. So please share this podcast with your community and follow us on Instagram at bethechange.nyc. And to learn more about our guests and what you can do to be the change, go to our website at www.bethechange.nyc. That's bethechange.nyc. Thank you and be well.